Welcome to episode four of the second season of the Books of My Life podcast. I'm your host, Haritha Bastani, arts and culture editor at The National. In this podcast, I explore the roles that books and stories have played in the lives of a number of influential figures, spanning a range of backgrounds. But before we start, make sure to subscribe and follow Books of My Life on your favorite podcast app to get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. As a child, I was obsessed with Indiana Jones. I watched the films over and over again, I played the video games, and I almost sparked an international incident flying into Abu Dhabi airport with a toy Indiana Jones gun. But while it sparked a lifelong obsession with travel and history, somewhere deep within, I always knew I would never really end up swinging through ancient ruins with a bullwhip, running from giant boulders. However, the same can't be said for Benedict Allen. Benedict is about the closest I've ever gotten to meeting a real-life Indiana Jones. Having travelled from the Amazon to the Arctic, he never takes any GPS equipment and builds local expeditions from the ground wherever he goes. On occasion, he's even been known to dodge a bullet or two, wearing an explorer's hat. Sound familiar? In this manner, he's brushed up against the jaws of death on many occasions. Nine times to be precise. I was amazed to learn how even for someone living on the farthest fringes of the human experience, part of that path can be traced back to books. He recalls being inspired by the stories of Dr. Livingstone and Wilfred Thesiger, people who, as he says, had a dream and were prepared to take risks for those dreams. One of the most striking things in in your life is the fact that, is it true you've almost died nine times? Well, it's, I've never added it up, but it's something like that. There have been a few dramatic times in my life which have been particularly hairy, you could say, in English, I suppose. Uh, I was trying to cross the Amazon Basin once, a uh, long, long time ago, and I found myself being shot at by Pablo Escobar's people. And I was sim- simply an explorer in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, paddled past his camp. You know who Pablo Escobar is? Yes, of course. Yeah. You've worked with him. No, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Not I'm quite that familiar, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he was the world's most wanted man. I think this was about 1992, something like that. And he was actually hunted down about six months later up in Medellin, Medellin, which is his area up in the mountains. But I was down in the Amazon, and he was lying low uh, on the border between Peru, Brazil, and Colombia. And I was just paddling past, and um, he sent a couple of people to kill me. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very, I don't fit in. in the, <laughs> I should explain, I'm very tall. I look like a, well, I look like a gringo, I suppose. And... Um, I think he just thought, if in doubt, get rid of him. And uh, these two people chased behind me in their canoe and fired off these rifle shots. And poof, poof, I remember these bullets going right past my head. Um, uh, I mean, it's unforgettable, as, as you can imagine. I suppose about six shots went right past my head, just kept on missing. And I was very fortunate. It turns out these people were town people. And although they're, they're handy with a gun, they couldn't paddle a canoe and shoot at the same time. So I got away with it, got around the river bend. Uh, that was one time I was, I've been attacked by gold miners. Uh, I was robbed by two people, two loggers actually, who were helping me carry my bags. Uh, and we made a little crossing across a, a river in the Amazon. Uh, we made a, we cut down a tree and laid it across this river. And, uh, the two men with my bags crossed ahead of me along this pole, the tree trunk to the other side. And then just when I was going to get on the tree trunk to cross over, they kicked the tree away and bang went my 
crossing point <laughs> and I, they had robbed me and left me to die. They walked off with all my stuff. So these, these things have happened in the course of my career, but uh, they're not what I look forward to. You know, these are things when, times when things go wrong. And what is it that, how are you able to kind of, when something like that happens, just kind of deal with it and go on the next expedition without, I mean, is there fear there or do you just push through the fear of it all? I suppose I push for the fear. These aren't normal. I've been doing this for a long, long time, you know, since I was 22. Because when I was a little boy, I wanted to become some sort of explorer. And I had it in my head that explorers were like, well, sort of exciting people who went off and found out about wonderful places. And, and it's true, they do. But uh, my dad was a test pilot. So he used to test these extraordinary aircraft. There's one called the Vulcan Bomber. And he was a test pilot on this aircraft. And I remember him flying this over the back garden. Uh, this extraordinary plane, and I decided I want to become like my dad. And I think I have got some of that test pilot stuff in me. I'm not as organized as a test pilot. My mind isn't as rational. But nonetheless, I tend to think through the real... You've got to work out what is out there that's a threat. But then there are real threats and imagined threats. I'm quite good in a crisis. I'm not very good talking to you. You know, I've got edgy and bouncy... But in a crisis, I tend to be quite calm. And it's, it's these, um, you know, when we're under pressure, under threat, all of us react differently. And I'm one of those people who calms down. So I think I, I work through these problems and think to myself, well, next time I just improve a little bit and hope it doesn't happen again. But I've had a lot of experience now. I, I'm someone who can cope in rainforest, desert, Arctic. Um, and these places have become more like a home to me than a threat. And so often we're taught to think of these places as places of danger with crocodiles and piranhas and terrible things. But generally, these incidents don't happen. Things don't go wrong if you know what you're doing. And I suppose I've, I've learned a lot through local people, indigenous people who've taught me to see places like the Amazon, Borneo, New Guinea as a home instead of a threat. And obviously, when you think of the great explorers, of which clearly you are one, um, thank you. <laughs> I'm one of them. A, a sort of it. Well, one way or another. That's um, my job. When, when you were growing up, when you were young, you mentioned that, that you'd always been excited about this idea of exploring. Were there any literary figures that sprung out when you were young? Any book, any characters that you think? I suppose there were a lot. There were the old-fashioned ones, like uh, there's Dr. Livingstone, who's a famous Scottish explorer, it was in the heart of Africa, a Victorian figure. And then there were scientific collectors. I rather liked those. Uh, someone called Bates, Wallace, Waterton. These were great figures. Here in Arabia, there, there was Wilfred Thessinger, who was a, a famously lived, uh, well, walked across the empty quarter with uh, two Bedou. So uh, he knew this part of the world very, very well and really respected it and the people hugely. And he made this uh, area his home, really. And, uh, and I'm so, so fond of here. So he was very inspiring. Um, I think the more, I mean, it has to be said, there's a history of imperialism with exploration. There's no mm. doubt about it. So many explorers have gone off in search of, not just in facts, uh, but to plunder and to advance their government. Uh, but these individuals tend to be the ones who, who at a personal level, they're, they want to embrace the place. They want to learn and, and see the place as a place they, that inspires them. Um, and so these are the figures. Uh, Tor Heyerdahl, another one, a Norwegian. I don't know if you remember him, but um, famously he 
uh, the Contiki voyages set off through, he was set off through Polynesia to uh, try and work out who might have settled, well, in the Pacific area. He did various projects, but these individuals who had a dream and were prepared to uh, take risks for their dream, very inspiring to me. One of the houses in my school was named after Haidar. Ah, <laughs> not the Benedictine <laughs> house of Tor, Tor oh, well, Haidar. You never know, maybe it's changed. Maybe now, yeah. Maybe now, this rightfully. No, no, I, I joke. <laughs> these, these people are so inspiring. And then as I got older, I, I met Thessinger, I met Tor Haidar, and uh, some of these great people. And um, as I say, they're, they're often visionaries, not vision, or certainly people with a vision. Of, and they could be arrogant. You've got to have a certain self belief in your. Um, but they're also, I, I think, immensely inspiring, especially as a child. To, you think, wow, there is a world out there to explore. And I, I think part of my job in life is to encourage younger people to, to realise we all are by nature explorers. I'm a classic explorer type, I suppose, but we are all curious about the world. And we're all, I think, I mean, it's part of the hum, human nature. And um, uh, the world is ever-changing. And we aren't rational creatures, humans. So I think it's, it, it, it's important that we are always reevaluating from our point of view and from other people's points of view about the world that's around us, which is a wonderful place. And of course, increasingly threatened in a way by our own kind. And it's something that I think people are, is becoming increasingly alien to people, the idea of exploring the ability to explore. And I think, and I think that being able to, do that and then actually document it and actually be able to convey the experience must be such a challenge. Yes, it's a strange thing because you would have thought there's less and less places in the world to explore. And at one level, that is true in that the world is more and more mapped, it's more and more known, but really we're just scratching the surface. Uh, it, we don't even understand the creatures in our backyard. You know, that there's so much there, so much life. We've only identified maybe 10% of the species on the planet. That's identified them. We don't know how they all operate, let alone as a system. So there's a mass to discover. And now is the era of communication. Uh, we, we communicate with our phones and so on. And I think this is actually, we should see it as an opportunity. But the weird thing is, I find, you know, I'm, I'm known as a, the sort of weirdo amongst explorers because I, I don't take a GPS. I don't take a satellite phone. <laughs> Um, and I know I see you edging away from me. It is a bit strange, but it's um, for me. It's more important than ever to cut ourselves off because we. Are so having said, it's exciting to be able to communicate. I think we we are so in touch with each other, so in touch that we tend to we go to take the same ideas, or, or they call it positive feedback, or, or our own ideas get reinforced by like-minded people. So good to step away from our society, from from people we agree with. And to immerse ourselves amongst other people who we may not disagree with, or just immerse ourselves amongst the new. So, although at the beginning of my career, way back in the 1980s, I didn't take a satellite phone because there weren't any satellite phones, I've carried on that with that because I think it's incredibly important to uh, to cut yourself off and immerse yourself in other worlds. So, to me, it's more relevant than ever to be a sort of classic explorer character. Well, I think as well, there was a time when it was pretty much ordinary life was being in the fridges, was being in extreme situations constantly. Uh, and now that things have changed, most of us would be pretty hopeless put into any of these situations that you've been in. Or, yeah, I, I suppose that's my job is to, get, <laughs> to do it for those other people who don't want to suffer. <laughs> Not that I want to suffer, but yeah, I suppose that's the, in a way that it is, in truth, my job. I'm a specialist. 
at doing things that other people don't want to do or haven't got the opportunity to do. Um, to to uh, my last expedition, I was in the Amazon alone for three weeks, just in the forest alone. Um, and I think, you know, there's very few people who ever alone for more than a day or two in any environment. Uh, but it's important that someone is alone here and there to uh, communicate what it is actually like or as they see it. And I mean, do you ever take books with you when you're... I don't actually, I don't. I, I think in, in my early days, in fact, I know in my early days, I, I stuffed my rucksack with books. But I I tend to be, yeah, I do get lonely sometimes and so on. I do tend to think, oh, if only I had some music or something to play. But actually, I'm someone who by nature immerses themselves quite easily. And so if I have a book or music to listen to, I immerse myself in that world, not the world I'm meant to be exploring. And I suppose, you know, I'm very busy. I have to learn local languages and um, I tend to travel alone. I immerse myself amongst indigenous communities and I've got, I've got to learn languages and, and form relationships with people before setting off. And so it's, if I get too excited by a book and immerse myself into that, then I'm limiting my chances of survival. Do you think that there are any great works of explorer literature? that you think have been written? Oh, I think, uh, I think great, yes, masses, Arabian Sands. I mentioned yes. uh, Wilfred Thessinger, the Contiki expeditions, uh, the uh, the Snow Leopard, Peter Matteson. I love that book. Some would say it's not a book of exploration. This is Peter Matteson, a zoologist, American. He set off in search of the Snow Leopard, this sort of, it's not a mythical beast, but it's, it's mysterious because it's quite difficult to see it. Uh, and wrote a beautiful book that conveys not just the habitat, the world of the snow leopard, but the Himalayas. Uh, so these are all, to me, acts of exploration and, and great, great works, great legacies. And there, there are dozens of them. And my, I've got a little, my office is stacked with these books, my childhood and as I grew older. Uh, the, the journeys of Nansen, Shackleton, uh, Amundsen, Scott. You know, these are great polar explorers from that so-called heroic age. Uh, but the people who lived in forests, the, the boffins I, I mentioned earlier, Bates, Waterton, and Captain Cook, you know, these characters I learned about when I was little. They all wrote um, an, a, an appreciation of the world from their point of view, and it wasn't necessarily the correct point of view. Maybe there is no exact exactly correct point of view and of course they were all outsiders these people i've mentioned and maybe now it's time for indigenous people to write their accounts mm. in fact way time uh, but it, it, it hasn't always been possible but for me of course my job as a european is, is to try and understand the world from my culture's point of view and uh, there are other people who should do it from their culture's point of view to what extent i mean how difficult is it when you are venturing into somewhere you've never been or into a situation that you have never been in before you set off on, on an expedition to what extent, because you just mentioned that part of it is to understand it within like the, the prism of your culture, but at the same time, do you have to kind of drop a lot of that and just, and how difficult is that? Such a good question because yeah, I felt uneasy saying it. I'm trying, I'm, rep, I'm coming as a European and I have to, accept that I will have my cultural baggage. There's no, I can't just become a, an international figure who's, who's nothing. You, you always will have your own terms of reference. I think it's important to acknowledge that. 
On the other hand, I think it's incredibly important to be vulnerable. And so I mentioned about the imperialism and exploration and so on. A lot of this is because explorers have come from a position of power and they've come from their point of view as a European or as a this person or that person. But they've, by definition, really, the, the ability to cross the planet and immerse yourself into rainforests, into the Arctic, into a desert, means you've, you've come in, in that position of power. Um, and furthermore, the indigenous people often are the exact opposite. They're the people who've been marginalised right across the planet. Uh, it carries on today as it has for thousands of years. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, it's incredibly important for me to drop as much as I can. I mentioned I don't take a phone, I don't take a, a GPS, um, I don't take reading matter. I tend to, I go alone, uh, and I tend to build up an expedition with local people's help. And that, that could be frontiersmen at first, it could be missionaries actually at first, but then gradually, gradually over the course of three or four months, move into an area that is has less outside influence and try and build up friendships actually. Uh, so I tend to think of my guides, not as guides, but as friends, people I can really trust and who trust me. And they, they understand I'm putting my life in their hands. And that, I hope, makes it more of an equal relationship. So, so we look each other in the eye and, and feel we're doing something together and learning about each other together. So what you are mentioning, I think it's incredibly important to go not as Indiana Jones, you know, with your whip and, and your dream, your goal to grab something, but as someone more like a child. And actually, so many times I've, you know, I've been had this humiliating experience of arriving thinking, yes, now I really do know how to cope in this forest. And the elders would just shove me, as usual, with the children, thinking, right, he's about the level of a 10-year-old, maybe an 8-year-old. They shoved me with the children. And the, it's been really lovely because children often taught, quite rightly, that you know, white people or people like me are invaders, um, plunderers, because we often are um, and have been in the new world, in the old world. Um, and here's a totally incompetent one. You know, see me, far too tall. I'm almost two metres tall, six foot four. And by the time I got into the forest, you know, I'd be exhausted. But I'd be shoved with the children, and they delight in hunting me, you know, and, and this sort of thing. Sort of, I'm sure the instruction would be, you know, please hunt with him, show him. But they'll just think, aha, this is funny. They'll shoot toy bows and arrows at me. But it's so good for me to be brought to hunt uh, and um, to be vulnerable and make us have a strength, see a strength in vulnerability. And there must be such a beautiful moment there where you make that connection. Yes, very touching often that I've been given that trust. Uh, there's a funny experience I had uh, in, I was with the Matzes in the Peruvian Amazon, and uh, I was shoved with a child uh, called Lucy, and it was so brilliant, but her father wanted me to marry her. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't romantic, I should say. This was it, it, it quite sad in a way, when she was pretty well a child, maybe 10 years old. Um, but her people were so threatened by the outside world, and he, right. this little girl, Lucy, is such a, so sorted, so adept, uh, and uh, you know it was never going to happen. We're going to weren't going to be married. But her father felt to ensure the safety of her people in the forest uh, in the future, and this would be a great allegiance. But, um, and it didn't happen. But I, I went back thirty years later, almost just a few years ago, just a couple of years ago, and there she was, married with her children, and was laughing at me at my ability. 
hadn't really moved beyond a child, but she had she had grown up. She was now thirty five, and I was I was just uh, still this child level. So she's still sort of bossing me about as she did all those years ago. But it's very touching that I should be trusted, you know, with someone's yeah. daughter. You know, it's... And also, I mean, that's something that was very typical in European societies at a certain point, betrothing mm. people when they were young to suitors who might have, where there might be some sort of beneficial yes. benefit I, to the family. Or Absolutely. Yes, I was always aware, though, that I couldn't ever cope in the forest. But it just says something about her father, who's very very well-known person and had the responsibility for a whole community of, of Matt Sayers, uh, that he, he saw the future as being outside the forest, essentially saw me as strong outside the forest, and I wasn't strong inside the forest, but he felt somehow this was going to secure her future. But the wonderful thing is that all these years later, I said she was very sorted, this little girl. She's married the the chief, uh, the chief of the Matt Sayers, and um, she's now leading the community, and they've kept their forest um, and they've kept a huge amount of their traditions. So it's a, it was very lovely to see that she had found her place, not on my terms, but on her own terms, and uh, had helped preserve her community and the environment. Uh, I'm aware you've already been very generous with your time so far. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything that you think, as an explorer, what, or what? obviously there's so many things that you must learn while you're out there, uh, but... What do you think is the greatest takeaway or the greatest lesson that you could share with someone who's never been in, in the wilderness or in, in the extreme environments? Mm, it's, I think it's, it's difficult to come up with one. I would say that when I was little, I saw the world as a wonderfully exotic place. But gradually, as I lived with more and more people, I began to see we're all the same. And I know it sounds, it's obvious, isn't it? We, all the humans are the same. But it somehow very powerful to see again and again and again the people in the end were made up of the they, they, within any community I'd find a bully and I'd find a a mild meek person and then I'd find a generous open-hearted person in a whole range of humanity in every little community um so I found that immensely reassuring that we're all the same and, and I think it's encouraging for us all if, if we want to learn about the world to to take comfort in that and think of that there is this kindness in strangers. And again and again, I've trusted myself to communities and generally communities will be kind just as your own community is. Uh, I don't know if that's enough of a takeaway really, but, but I would say that going back to that thing I mentioned earlier, that we all are explorers by nature. And I think it's so important. We believe not just that, but the world is there to be explored. And I, I think it's, it's still an exciting place. And, Strangely, we need explorers more than ever because of the threat to the various ecosystems, let alone climate change. But there's a role for people to go out and, and understand the world, and that role's vital. And not just for specialists like me, but for everyone to take, be a witness to the world. And what do you think is the next great frontier, or what do you think are the great expeditions that haven't been done? Well, more and more and more people are looking to space, and I, I think it's such a cop out. I, I guess I'm not a great, you know, whatever Elon Musk has done in, in for example, well, he's not the only one, but you know, a lot of billionaires looking to space, and of course, it's exciting. Space is exciting, but I just feel there's such an urgent problem we've got to sort out on the planet, and it is it's too easy to say, right, let's forget about the Earth, we're going to make a mess of it, let's go look into space. These seem to be 
sort of vanity projects in a way, because the real job that needs to be done is is here. So individual projects, there aren't the big things. Yes, in the sea uh, and, and deep deep down in the sea and so on, but there aren't the but there aren't the valleys that there were when I was starting out. The, the huge un, unexplored, as it were, areas, the places that outsiders never been. There aren't those, but there. The job is still there to be done, and it's just on a different scale. And I, I get very excited on Twitter looking at an insect specialist, you know, and he'll show these photographs of a spider. Or there's a, the other day there's a fungus that had taken over um, a caterpillar, and there was this zombie caterpillar that was um, moving along, being met, you know, the, and the real steerer behind the zombie was this fungus that had inhabited it. These things are absolutely amazing. So I think one way or another, this is the level that we, we need to explore the, the close-up. But we can all take part because, as I say, we, we don't understand what's going on in our back garden. It just needs a bit of um, dedication, I suppose. That, uh, but there are still worlds out there to explore. It's not the great ranges, not the huge valleys or the undiscovered peoples, but there are undiscovered things all around us. Yeah, because one of the things I often think about is um, you, if you visit sites like Angkor Wat or Machu Picchu, these were once such remarkable discoveries that they lay undiscovered for so long. And now they, they become these tourist sites that, that are at risk because they're so visited. And I guess that it becomes increasingly difficult to find these new um, uncharted territories. But like you say, they're out there. They are out there. And we have to keep on uh, remembering that um, there, are, there are things all around us. They, they, these things still are exciting to me on Twitter. And I'm someone who's been immersed around the world more than anyone, you know, and I still get excited. So there are things out there, just different scale. That brings us to the end of this episode of Books of My Life Season 2. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angami, or your favorite podcasting platform. Next week, I sit down with writer and professor Shahid al-Shamari, Stay tuned for more captivating conversations and gripping stories. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Duaf Farid. I'm your host, Harith Al-Bastani. Thanks for listening.